right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Fearcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, um, and uh, the treatment of those things and how to get your life back. I am your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed clinician specializing in OCD and anxiety treatment. So for all of you who are new to this, who are just finding this because of my uh, fantastic guest today, welcome. Um, So this is a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, can email me in questions. If you go over to fearcastpodcast.com and go over to the submit a question link, you'll be able to send me a question and I will read it. I will consider it. I will record it. I will will record, more importantly, an answer to it. So if you have a question about OCD and anxiety treatment or how to support a loved one with uh, one of those things, um, you can message me in there. And by the way, again, this does not have to just be OCD. I know we focus a lot on that, but it can be social anxiety. It can be phobias. It can be um, it can be generalized anxiety. It can be panic attack. It can be anything related to those things. And uh, I'll be more than happy to, uh, uh, to discuss kind of some treatment and kind of some considerations within those things. Things. Um, for all of you who are um, uh, continued listeners, again, thank you so much for continuing on uh, listening. Um, I, I, I love doing the show. I love uh, talking with folks. And I love reading the questions that you guys send in. It is fantastic, guys and gals, I suppose. Um, so, uh, so to that point, by the way, um, I'm going to make this beginning part relatively short so we can get on to that interview as soon as we can. But um, I teased this last week, where I was kind of musing about this last week, about doing a uh, doing a, a survey, uh, doing a survey for all of you listeners to give me some of your feedback about the podcast. What can I, what, what am I doing well? What can I do be doing better? Um, what's good? What's bad? All those things. Um, and just to get some ideas about how to further refine this, how to further improve this. I suppose I've been going two years, two plus years on this uh, without um, asking uh, for any direct feedback. But ladies and gentlemen, I am asking for your direct feedback. So if you have a moment and can go over to fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey, that's right, I tried to make it as complicated as I possibly could, fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey, you can go there and um, you can uh, answer just a couple of questions. Man, it's probably going to take like five minutes to go through. Um, uh, Maybe eight minutes if you're going to fill out some longer kind of uh, paragraph or sentence things to give me some feedback. And, and I, I would greatly appreciate it. I'm going to take all of these things very seriously, too. If you say it sucks, but you offer some feedback, I'm most likely going to take some, um, take some of that uh, information and try to tighten this show right up. I should probably say sucks less. I probably should. That's uh, somewhat unprofessional. But you know what? Sometimes that's the language that we use. The feelings we have kind of suck. So, or sucks. Anyways. All right, everybody, again, fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey. All right, so my guest today is going to be talking to me uh, about faith and doubt. Um, uh, I, I somewhat have a fear and doubt, excuse me, a, a faith and doubt series um, with this podcast. It has been a long time since I've done another installment to that, but uh, today I'm delighted. I'm really, really excited to have uh, Jamie uh, on the show. So a little bit about the faith and doubt series. I, I, my my goal in it ultimately is to try to be, um, uh, ha, ha, or 
try to hit a, a wider variety of uh, religious backgrounds. However, I'll be honest, the majority of the people I've spoken with are Christian. Um, everyone I've spoken to is Christian in this. Um, I would be delighted to actually speak to a rabbi, an imam, um, a witch doctor. I don't know. A anybody, if you are all out there and know someone who is aware of what OCD is and would be willing to chat with me and answer some questions, for you listeners, about how scrupulosity impacts one's religion, one's spirituality, um, and then to offer some tips, some ideas that um, uh, can help with that, particularly from a, a religious perspective, and I'd be more than happy to chat with them and try to infuse some therapeutic techniques that uh, that, that that can be really helpful for someone uh, within that religious background and uh, religious tradition. Um, I, I would greatly appreciate that. So if you do know someone out there um, who is uh, not of the Christian persuasion. I suppose if you know someone who'd be fantastic for this series uh, that I could interview, I would be more than happy. But if you know someone who is not from a Christian or a Catholic background, um, who'd be willing to talk about this, who is, uh, to a certain degree, an authority on the subject, um, Send them their send me their contact information. Forward them my contact information. I'll try to connect with them, and uh, I would like to make this work. So, before we get into it, let me tell you a little bit about her. Jamie Eckert is a spiritual life coach who helps Christians overcome scrupulosity through biblical transformation. She's currently working towards her PhD in religion from Andrews University in Michigan, and has spent over ten years in ministry, including the last seven years in Beirut. She's also the founder of Scrupulosity.com, where she shares resources and weekly articles to support Christians on their journey to overcome OCD. Without further ado, here's Jamie. All right, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on the FearCast. So uh, you're going to be taking us through the top things that someone with, with religious scrupulosity ought to know uh, as they start thinking about challenging their fears, start thinking about uh, uh, getting into therapy, thinking whether or not therapy is a good place for them, a right start, where to start, how to go through this. So um, I appreciate you taking the time today to chat with us about um, chat with us about your expertise and, and share a little bit of knowledge for the listener. Okay. Yeah, and hopefully what we can do is we can look at it particularly from the perspective of how would someone with scrupulosity go about it from a Christian perspective? Because, you know, there's always that, um, that fear that somehow, you know, therapy is going to bring some kind of damage or detriment to their spiritual life. And so um, hopefully I can share a few ideas about um, how we can go about therapy from that Christian perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, why don't we start at the very beginning? So, so uh, uh, we've got, uh, for all of you listeners out there, we've got six points we're going to try to hit and maybe hit some lightning round questions at the very end if we're, if we're lucky. But um, the for, uh, point number one, despite being a really old book, the Bible is indeed relevant to people struggling with anxiety-related disorders. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, what we see actually in our world today, in the Christian world, we see that there's actually two extremes that we often go to whenever we talk about anxiety disorders or emotions or, you know, those uncomfortable, you know, psychological realities like anxiety. And those two extremes that we often see, on the one hand, we have toxic positivity. And so people will go and tell you, like, you know, you absolutely should not ever be anxious if you're a real believer. 
thou shalt never be anxious, right? So we've got toxic positivity on one side. On the other hand, we've got something that's been called moralistic therapeutic deism. And therapeutic deism is basically this, you know, idea that, yeah, God exists, but he basically exists only to make me happy, make me feel good. And kind of this mushy, marshmallowy idea of God that is quite distant from the biblical God, but can be emotionally comfortable for people. So you've got these two extremes and, um, and neither one is exactly biblical. Okay. Because the Bible is very nuanced in its treatment of anxiety and emotions. Um, for example, like one of the most common verses that's being used for this, you know, school of toxic positivity is Philippians four, six, which says, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, that's a nice verse. That was the Apostle Paul. I, I've heard clients bring this up and then guilt themselves if and when they ever experience any any anxiety, fear, questions, etc. Exactly, and this is the uh, this is taking only one verse without considering the whole context, without considering who was the Apostle Paul, what else did the Apostle Paul say about anxiety? And it's really interesting because on the one hand, Paul is saying, "Do not be anxious about anything." But then we have a verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, where he's saying, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So here Paul is also saying that he has daily pressure and anxiety for the churches. And of course, some versions will translate this word as concern or care for the churches. But when we go back to the original Greek, it's the exact same Greek word in both verses. And so what he's saying is that I don't want you to be anxious at all, but yet he's also admitting that he's got anxiety. And so it's very nuanced. It's really nuanced uh, expression of the fact that we live in a broken world and there are ideals that God would love for us to have no anxiety. He would love for us to be, you know, carefree, but we don't live in the, you know, New Jerusalem. We don't live in heaven where things have been restored to God's ideal yet. So, um, so, yes, the Bible is very relevant. It does talk a lot about fear, anxiety, anger, guilt, um, and how we can deal with these emotions appropriately. But we do have to be careful not to take an extreme approach to one side or the other. I, I, I mean, I, I, nuance is the one thing that OCD and anxiety hates. It's uh, yeah. And I mean, I mean, I can see those two verses absolutely being... Um, uh, being juxtaposed to one another. How is it mm -hmm. that one is supposed to not feel anxiety? I mean, the verbiage of that almost sounds like it's a, it's a mandate, right? It's like one of the big 10, but then right. you hear Paul also experiencing anxiety himself. So is he, would it, would the, I, I, I suppose I, I could hear a client in my head saying, or someone with this group saying, well, he, he was in sin for having anxiety. Yeah, that would be, I, you're right. Uh, people with scrupulosity tend to be really black and white thinkers, really all or nothing. And so a verse like this, do not be anxious about anything, that's very black and white. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's easy to just run with that. Right. But the reality is that um, the Bible, I mean, the Bible is a really emotional book. It talks a lot about emotions. And um, we, what we, what we find in both the Old and New Testament is that we find um, commandments about ethics, but we do not find commandments about emotions. Mm. Okay, so we can go, for example, to Psalm 4, and Psalm 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Like, that's really surprising because, you know, here's David the psalmist telling you, you know, it's okay to be angry, but what you do with that anger is the problem. 
Okay, you can be angry and you can go out and kill somebody or you can be angry. And, you know, this Psalm 4 goes on to say, be angry, do not sin, sit on your bed and meditate in your heart. Right. And that's like a that's a pretty balanced you know response to having anger. And I think anxiety would be definitely in the same category that the emotion itself is not sinful in any way. But your response and what you choose to do with that emotion could go either in an ethical or an unethical route. Yeah, and and that and that is really reflective of what we talk about in therapy for just any anxiety subtype, um, OCD or otherwise, is that we can't control the feelings that we have. If I mean, mm-hmm. to the point, uh, to the verse, uh, don't feel anxiety. If we could have done it, we would have done it already. Mm-hmm. But we can't. So the fact is that we can feel this anxiety, but as what you're talking about is that it says that feel feel the feels, but be intentional about your response to it. Do something specific with it. Don't let the feelings overrun and dictate your life, but put them put them in an appropriate place. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I always just go back to, you know, say the Ten Commandments and none of the Ten Commandments talk about emotions at all. Mm -mm. It's all about your actions. And God is concerned about your choices, what you choose to do with life. Um, Emotion is a normal and natural variant of, you know, human behavior that the Bible, I mean, the Bible literally talks about every emotion under the sun. And we see Jesus had emotions like, you know, fear when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had emotions like uh, feeling lonely and forsaken when he was on the cross. All of the, you know, big names in the Bible had emotional issues like Elijah and Moses had suicidal thoughts and David had depression. We just see all kinds of emotions. And you're like, how is it? How do we even get the idea that emotions are sinful? This is like if you actually read the Bible, you just can't come to that conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what's going through my head is actually just a bigger question for the church. And, and, and why is it that we don't talk about this or why is it that that, um, that that we don't address that? And I think and and I guess what's also coming to mind is that we we as people don't really handle feels very well. Mm. Right. It's what, what do we yeah. do with them? We don't like them. They feel uncomfortable. They, they tell us to do weird things that we don't want to do. They make us think stuff that we're, quote, not supposed to. Well, no, make us think stuff. They make us feel stuff that we don't want to, right? Yeah, but, absolutely. But it's, uh, it's, it's, tough to, it's tough to shut down. So, yeah, so I mean, to, to that point about, it, yes, it being a really old book, it's, um, I, I, I love how you put it. It's very human. Mm-hmm. It includes this and, nuance. You know, our, our response to it also is um, very cultural. Okay, I've lived abroad for the last seven years, and I've interacted with a lot of different cultures, and I've seen how Christianity and other religions as well, how they um, react to emotions. And I think a lot of our, um, you know, I was mentioning earlier to you that I'm also, you know, as well as being interested in religion, I'm very interested in sociology and anthropology. And so culture is really a fascination for me and um, the American cultural Christianity has a big problem with emotions. Mm. And that's really fascinating because, you know, I'm living in the Middle East. And if I go to a Christian church in the Middle East, um, I mean, people will, will cr- like men cry without even thinking about it. You know, there's a lot less shame attached to emotions. Like um, Middle Easterners are often very emotional and they can just open up and they, they talk about their emotions. They can cry with each other. And even in church when in, in relation to, you know, spiritual things. So um, 
I think this goes back to kind of that toxic positivity, which is um, very deeply ingrained with the American culture of, you know, get her done, you know, you can do this, you know, man up and, you know, <laughs> so that's a cultural thing also. And it's been imposed on the religious worldview. Mm. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm reflecting back on some of the, the experiences I had in like college, um, college ministry, stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. um, some of the, some of the men's books that they would recommend that, uh, that the fellows read. And they, they did feel very simplistic in their explanation of what, what we should be feeling and how we should be, what we should be doing, uh, to a certain degree. Some of them are, are uh, wild at heart is coming to mind. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Uh, don't, mm -hmm. I would say, but it's, uh, it, it's very much, um, go, go, Go do it. Be a outdoors wild man sort of crazy person. Um, that should be that should be your default. Right, and, and, and I think if we, if we make a case for toxic positivity, we can also make a case for toxic masculinity. Valid. I think we can. When when you said those terms. Toxic positivity. Um, I, I don't know if you saw me just put my hands up in, in excitement. That uh, <laughs> yes. It's like I've never heard anybody use that term, but um, I'm going to start using that term a lot more. So, All right. <laughs> so, um, so is there anything else that you want to add to this point or expand upon or, or, or shall we move on to the next point? You know, we have so much to cover. Let's move on. Okay, good point. All right. Um, all right. So the next point, it's okay for Christians to seek therapeutic interventions for OCD and anxiety disorders. Tell me about that. Right. This is a big one. And I can't tell you how many clients have come to me feeling bad about the fact that they're seeking help. Yeah. And, you, you know, you just feel bad. You feel bad for them because they're already burdened with guilt and this false shame and false guilt. And on top of that, they have guilt for seeking help. It's just like this really vicious cycle that just is going to keep them trapped in their OCD. So, um, so this is for me a very important point that it is okay for Christians to seek those, um, those therapeutic interventions. And what I would base my, my reasoning on is, um, I mean, well, obviously the whole Bible is supporting the idea of health and wholeness. And um, there's a lot of confusion on this topic because um, of what the Bible, you know, there's like this incomplete picture of what the Bible teaches about anthropology, you know, who and what human beings are and what it means to be human. The Bible talks about that, but we've kind of misconstrued and we've got a really twisted picture of, you know, what it means to be a human as a Christian, right? So um, when we look at the entire scope of the Bible and what it says about anthropology, we see that it gives a very holistic picture, a very holistic picture of who, uh, who human beings are. And um, I give you a verse to illustrate that from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. It says, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got all three of these that, that, that the Apostle Paul is saying that, you know, this should be kept blameless, your spirit, your soul, and your body, not just your spirit, right? And we have kind of these other triads that we find throughout scripture, like in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Mark 12, it's heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, we have some variations on, you know, this, this anthropological vision for what human beings are, but... The whole point of all of them is offering a holistic picture that human beings are not dissected parts and pieces, 
that, you know, you can just care about one or treat only one part. Um, there's no hierarchical picture that somehow your soul is more important than your body and that, you know, your spiritual interests have to, you know, be activated to heal you spiritually from your physical maladies, you know, just have more faith. And if you have more faith, your cancer is going to go away. Like the Bible just doesn't give this, um, this picture. So the question is then where do we get it from? Right? Where do we get that from? <laughs> uh, it's super interesting. And here's my nerdiness coming out here. Yes. But, um, <laughs> Let it out. but actually it all started in the first century. Like after Jesus goes back to heaven and the disciples are trying to start up this baby church, um, there was a, a really weird cultic offshoot that started from Christianity and Judaism called Gnosticism. And a lot of people have heard about this because, you know, it's really, it has a lot of pagan roots, but it was this pseudo Christian kind of sort of Christian movement. And what they, they did is they, they took apart the biblical anthropology that said we are holistic beings. It took that apart and it introduced a dualism that it actually got from really, really, really old philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. It brought that into the picture and said, we are a dualism of body and soul. And the body is actually bad and the soul is good. And they had this weird idea that, you know, if we do really bad things to our body and, you know, we harm ourselves, then we can actually destroy the bad matter and the bad body that we have. And our divine spark can escape and reunite with God. This was the whole idea. Right. Right. And um, so it was that kind of pagan influence infiltrating Christianity. That's where we got some of the weird you know, middle ages and medieval practices, like, you know, you've heard of flagellation where the people were beating themselves right. or extreme fasting, or even like self mutilation where people were literally cutting off body parts in the name of religion. Pass. <laughs> I, I will pass. And, right. Exactly. So, um, so where does this come from? It's not found in the Bible. It's actually, um, from these pagan origins of Gnosticism and, um, and it even trickles down to today because even in our day, a lot of Christians, they're not really sure um, where the care of the body and mind fits with the care of the soul. It's like, it's like a, a really confused separation there. And it's, it's going back to that dualism of the, you know, early cultic, you know, Gnosticism. Yes, I agree. Um, no, that's... That's that, that's really interesting. So, kind of seeing that seeing that idea just trickling down from nineteen hundred years ago plus, right? Yeah. That we're still that we're still seeing the impacts of of a small offshoot that infiltrated the church and how it's continuing on. That's it's 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 fascinating. What is so within that? Then how is it that how can we? address that how can we help to correct some of this this thinking that because I've, I've heard people have the idea that that they're or, or have directly been told by church leaders by pastors by um, Bible study leaders etc that you know if they're if they're depressed it means they need to read the Bible more or they need to pray more or you know other other things that they would say are problems we, well we just it, it's reflective of a a lacking faith how do we right. how do we address that i think a lot of it goes back to um education of our clergy and simply studying the bible 
you know, like the, the Bible was written over a span of like 1500 years, lots and lots of different authors, but it's incredibly unified in its presentation of a holistic anthropology. And we come along and we just kind of slap our own interpretation over that. And, you know, we ignore a lot of what the Bible is actually expressing. So I think some of the corrective is just going back to the word of God and, you know, digging into it for ourselves. Um, hopefully raising awareness among um, the clergy about mental health, right? I mean, when, when we look at it, some 40 odd percent of the Psalms is laments. So we think this, the book of Psalms is like this happy-go-lucky book, but actually like 40% of it is, you know, crying out and despair and depression and discouragement and talking about that response of how we take our emotions to God. Right. Yeah. And yet somehow we've just like completely cut out so many of these aspects of biblical theology from our faith experience and, and, and preach this toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. Cause with the, I mean, I, mean I, I, I often hear then some folks talk about kind of a, 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 a distrust. I think there's a general just distrust of some in, in churches with uh, therapy, with therapists in, as well, mm-hmm. and kind of insist upon seeing a pastoral counselor, specifically a pastoral counselor. Um, I guess what I, I certainly have my own thoughts on that. Of course, I'm I'm biased as a as a therapist. But <laughs> what what do you suppose you would say to someone who's perhaps at, at the front end of treatment and is considering which avenue to go as to whether or not they should see a pastoral counselor, a lay counselor at their church, perhaps, or even going to their pastor to talk about this, depending on the size of the church, obviously, or considering going and working with a um, a licensed trained therapist. Um, I guess how would you how would you direct them. Right. Yeah. Good point. Um, you know, in, in my work as a scrupulosity coach, I get people that come to me and they say, oh, I went to a secular therapist and I tried to express my you know scrupulosity concerns, but he just totally didn't get it because he's not a Christian or whatever. Um, but I've also had other people say, oh, I went to my pastor, but you know, he doesn't really understand me. He tells me I need to have more faith. So at the end of the day, scrupulosity is a really, really small segment of the population. And we can't expect everybody to have, you know, perfect awareness and knowledge of what scrupulosity even is. And I do think that um, there's no shame in explaining to the people that you want help from them, explaining to them. So if, if you're a Christian with scrupulosity and you go to a secular therapist, for example, an OCD specialist that really has the tools to help you with your OCD, but maybe he's not a Christian, it's okay to explain your thought processes to him. He might not understand it, but his whole point is to help you. And um, I, I don't think that most therapists are, you know, trying to deconvert you. You know, it's more about uh, how can I help you? I don't really get all of your beliefs, but I'm open to helping you however I can. And um, so really, I think there's, there's um, a hesitation to open up to, to therapists and I don't understand where all of that comes from, but I think it could be embarrassment. It could be, you know, um, fear that you may be losing your spirituality by doing that. But, um, yeah, the same, I would say in the other direction. Also, if you, if you're going to your pastor and your pastor has no clue about scrupulosity, explain, let him read a book, let him, you know, read a few articles. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of the responsibility rests on our own, our own shoulders to, express ourselves better so that we can get the help that we need. One thing that you said that, that really resonated was this, um, 
was this idea that that the the average the average professional therapist out there is not trying to deconvert you. They're they're mm-hmm. not trying to to trick you into not being a Christian. They're not trying to trick you into or whatever faith background you have. Um, but they're not trying to trick you out of it, and they're also not trying to convert you to whatever their belief system is. Now, I I, I certainly can't speak for every therapist out there. There are some awful therapists out there, but. The I, I you know I'm I'm on some boards and whatnot with other therapists who are not Christians who are not um, screw people and you know when they when a screw question comes up or a question about religion comes up the vast majority of them I, I would I mean I'll, I'll go I'll go as far as to say all of them that I've read and, and certainly remember will say you know. I don't get it. They might say, you know, I'm formerly a Catholic, but, you know, I'm an atheist now and I don't believe in God at all. But I'll hear them out. I'll listen to them. And I'm trying to help them along their path as best they possibly can. Um, So but I but I also recognize, you know, on the other end of it, it's it. I think some of that embarrassment of of sharing some of these beliefs. I mean, one, OCD has such a stigma attached to it. I see such a such a stigma. I I also don't think it's as bad as a lot of people will think it is but mm-hmm. there is a i think more more importantly i think i think more accurately it there's a misunderstanding of what it actually is again everyone thinks it's just hand washing right but right. with with scrupulosity um you're right there is this temptation to kind of think that it is it's a it's a problem with doctrine it's a problem with your understanding of your faith which to a certain degree and i know you and i are going to talk a little bit about kind of a, a corrective element to it but Mm-hmm. Um, there, I, I, I wonder, and you know, I, I don't think we'll be able to get to an answer here, but I wonder if it's some Christians don't want to go to a non-Christian. They want to have that shared language, that same history and understanding, and hoping that the other, that the therapist or the other person is going to go, yeah, I totally get it. You should pray more, or you should read the Bible more, and kind of confirming their compulsive process. It could be that for, for some. Um, what I've heard repeatedly in, in my work, I've had people tell me, I don't want to go to a secular therapist who's an unbeliever, who doesn't know God. I don't want to express my doubts because I'm supposed to be a good witness. Mm. That's an and interesting so I point. That's the bigger issue I've encountered. Oh, that's an interesting point. I, um, I, I, a lot of folks don't um, verbalize that to me. Obviously, I've, I, I will. I'm open about telling people that I, I am a Christian and a therapist. I'm. I don't say I'm a Christian mm-hmm. therapist, though. But um, mm-hmm. we don't need to talk about that distinction. But the. But yeah, that's an interesting point. What do you? How do you approach that? My view is that all of us fundamentally are broken in some ways. Mm-hmm. And um, we get, again, again, going back to this idea that people with scrupulosity have very all or nothing type of thinking. And so they have this idea that I'm going to be an amazing witness for Christ or I'm really terrible. And um, I, I can't tell you how much anxiety I've encountered with people feeling like they're a bad witness because they have scrupulosity. And that's really sad because like we're all broken. We all have our defects. We all have our problems. And um, every single Bible character that, you know, shared the truth or shared his faith in any meaningful way also had major um, deficits and major problems. So um, I really think that going to a therapist and opening up about your struggles, you're taking a step to help yourself and improve and be a better Christian, a better witness, a better mother, father, daughter, son, whatever it may be. And, um, it's really not going to destroy somebody's eternal salvation because you admit that you have some struggles. 
Mm. I, I, I know we, I, I'm going to leave it at that point because I know I could probably ask more questions, but I shan't. So let's move on to that next point, if that's all right. Okay, so the next point is OCD's doubt and uncertainty is not incompatible with faith and absolute truth. Absolutely. So um, here we come to a point that I think is super, super, super important for anybody who has any hope of recovering from scrupulosity um, is that we have to overcome our addiction to certainty. And I say that very strongly because it is an addiction. We have a certainty addiction and all of our obsessions and all of our compulsions that we're going through, this is that, that addiction experience where we just can't let go of trying to find the answers, trying to achieve a sense that everything's okay, trying to achieve um, perfect, absolute, 100% answers. And um, that's what we want with our OCD experience. But when we actually come to the Bible, the Bible never... Um, never suggests that that's even possible or desirable. And I'll give one um, example that was literally the turning point for me. And, you know, I shared with you, I, I had scrupulosity. I still, you know, struggle to keep my, um, my OCD tendencies managed. Um, but this was the passage that was really the turning point for me. And it's the book of Job. Now, when I say the book of Job, people automatically are like, oh, yeah, we already know the story. You know, rich guy, he loses everything because God's testing him. Then God gives it back the end. But that's, you know, that's a, that's a nice part of the story. But that's only the first two chapters and the last chapter. And then in between that, we've got like 40 some odd chapters of dialogue going on. And so you just have to ask yourself, what's actually going on in all those chapter after chapter after chapter discussions that Job and his friends and God are having? Right. And the whole point in the book of Job is about certainty, which is what we're struggling with, with the OCD. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, Job, Job has some really uncomfortable stuff happening to him. And so he's asking the why question, why is this happening? What did I do? And he is just so determined to find some kind of an answer, mm. just like we are with our scrupulous questions. We've got to, we've got to find out. And, and as people. Yeah, exactly. We, we want to know. And, do we, we want to know. And so here, here's Job sitting with his friends, trying to figure out the answer, so obsessively trying to figure out the answer. And um, then God comes and starts talking. Uh -huh. And that's really the climax of the book. And it's totally not what you would expect. Like, it's totally not the, 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 the storyline like, like you would think it would be. God comes down in the whirlwind and he literally just starts bombarding Job with divine mystery and he's like hey man where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth where were you when i set the world up where were you do you know this do you know that do you know this and he just like buries job under all kinds of stuff that he doesn't know and you get to the end of the book and god doesn't answer job's questions at all at mm. all and it's kind of, it's like it's, all it's this like makes really me want great. to read job again I know, right? Oh it's an awesome book for OCD. And so you get to the end and Job's response is a response of humility. And he basically answers God with three words like, I don't know. Mm. And mm. that's the climactic answer for the entire, um, the entire book. I don't know. I don't know. There are things in this world and in this life that I can't understand. 
And, you know, thousands of years later, we can look back and we can, you know, kind of take, you know, peek behind the curtain and we can see the cosmic, you know, uh, contest that was going on between God and Satan. We can understand a little bit about what he was trying to accomplish. But Job, as far as we know, Job never knew that. Job never found that answer because Job didn't write that book. Moses wrote the book of Job. Right. And so he ends his story with all kinds of unknowns and gray areas and uncertainties. And that was actually what God was looking for. That was the response God wanted from him was to lean into his uncertainty and let God be God. For for uh, this has nothing to do with everything you just said, which was um, which was fantastic, and I definitely have something to say about that. For all the listeners out there, I can't tell you how excited Jamie looks as she's explaining all of this. Her passion is is palpable halfway across the world, and it's it's jazzing me up. So uh, maybe I didn't need that coffee at four o'clock today to make this happen. I just right. need Jamie's enthusiasm. So. Um, yeah, it's, gosh, it was so funny as you, it, it, even in your discussion of that, when you're like, oh, Job, I'm like, where's she going with this? And then as you start explaining, I'm like, oh, that's right. Then God jumps in and says, where were you? Who are you? And and really mm-hmm. it's saying, you don't need to know, I know. And that's what exactly. you need to trust is that I know. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so, but um, there is this, um, uh, one of the books out there that I just I just stink and love ever so much is that Can Christianity Cure My Obsessive Compulsive Disorder by Ian Osborne. Love that book. Yes. But, um, which again, should be a pamphlet, but that's a separate issue. So what I love about it for all the listeners out there is it essentially breaks it down into three different points. One, recognize that what you're experiencing is probably OCD. Two, give the responsibility up to God. God is the one who you are afraid that you're offending and let God be the one responsible for being offended, not you. And then three, do the thing anyways. Do whatever it is that you are afraid to do and do that anyways. But the second point is the biggest point. I think that's what you're talking about here. Give the responsibility of the knowledge, of the certainty, of the fear up up to God. That's kind of the idea that that you're talking about here is that we don't need to be the one to seek that certainty despite the fact that the urge to do that is so human of us to want that certainty it's the discipline of giving that up to giving that up to god who who does know yeah absolutely and actually um ian osborne's uh three steps that you just enumerated that's something that i lean on quite heavily right. when i'm helping my clients walk through their scrupulosity this trust therapy that he you know that he wrote about of giving that responsibility to God, that is absolutely um, like super, super, super important. And we'll talk about it a little bit later when we get to the um, exposure therapy, talking a little bit about that. Right. But for the Christian, I don't think that it's enough to simply expose yourself to what you're afraid of, right? Exposure is one thing, but before you can do that effectively, you've got to have that transfer to God. You've got to be able to Give your uncertainties to God before you are going to be comfortable actually facing your fears. Mm. So again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, but about this uh, this concept of the uncertainties, it's not just in the Book of Job. That's a really good illustration for it. But you can find it in verse after verse after verse. This this concept, like um, you know, First Corinthians thirteen. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. So even the Apostle Paul was like, you know what? We don't know everything right now. There's no way that we can have full knowledge of things. And that's something that we see um, people with scrupulosity striving for is complete knowledge and 
um, you know, 100% certainty. And at the root of that is control. We want to have control. It's, and it's like we've got to realize that we can't have that. It's a false sense of control. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, right. Go, go on. I feel like I, I stepped on your point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could just keep going with this. This is a, really a subject I'm passionate about. But um, I'll remind listeners also that, um, you know, it can be so uncomfortable, this idea of not finding answers to the things that we're most anxious about. But um, when you think about it, even when Jesus was departing from this earth, and he's going up in the cloud and saying goodbye to his disciples. Like some of the last words that he said to them was, you're not going to know everything. You know, the disciples were asking him questions. Jesus, is this the time that you're going to restore, you know, the power to Jerusalem and da, 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 da. And Jesus said, look, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. Did Jesus know? Yes, I'm sure he did. But he didn't tell them. In John 16, Jesus said, I have many things I'd like to tell you, but you can't bear it right now. So in no case is there ever an ex expectation that believers will know everything, even when it comes to spiritual matters. And that's the concern. If I sit and say like, okay, I'm a Christian and I don't know how astrophysics works and I don't know about the, you know, geography of uh, the Himalayas. Okay, that's fine. Like you don't really feel that that's a life or death thing to know about, but we want to know about our spirituality 100%. And we think that it's virtuous to think that way, but it's actually quite arrogant and it's not what we find in scripture. Does it, does it, does it also, do you see a, a, a tendency for some people to, to equate not knowing, not knowing all these things about one's faith to being a bad Christian or to being a, 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 a weak Christian? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this goes back to culture, which we talked about before. The American Christian culture is so strong about, um, you know, it really is a black and white worldview that we're living in. And it's stressed really heavily on apologetics, um, especially in this clash between, you know, the secularism or atheism or postmodernism. And then you've got the Christianity on the other side trying to defend itself, always on the offensive. And so um, the apologetics became super, super important, knowing answers for everything so that you can be sure of your faith. Mm -hmm. And I think the fear is that if you don't have all these answers, then you're going to just somehow slip off the waterfall into postmodern relativism and be lost forever. And that's just not the case. Or you're not making disciples. Right. Or you're not making disciples or you're not growing in the faith. Um, but honestly, I have, a, I have um, a phrase that I read in one of my books once that was so impactful for me. Um, it said, we can't know absolutely, but we can know sufficiently. Mm. And oh for me, that gosh, was such fantastic. A, yeah, just a short way of, of, of putting it together that God doesn't expect us to know 100%, but we can know enough to make a commitment and we can know enough to you know, move forward. Um, I, I, really, I really struggle to find any biblical justification for, um, you know, this certainty concept. And I think that it really is just a, a false form of trying to control. The, the what I, yeah, I, I've, I've literally sat in sermons where the, the pastor says, 
you all need to be certain about what you believe here. Certain about your, you know, I've, I've heard a client say they, they were in a sermon where they said you need to be sold out. So 100%, no questions. You need to be rock solid in all of your things. And obviously, this person was just overrun with guilt in, in, in that. Um, the, the one verse I sometimes will hear from clients, well, they'll talk about Hebrews 11.1, 1, you need to be certain of what you hope for and sure of what you don't see. I sometimes mix those, mix those up, but it's essentially the same statement twice but they're talking about being certain of what we hope for i guess how obviously there is there's the element of what we hope for we hope for something we don't have the tangible evidence here we hope for something in the future but i guess what what do we do with that that word of certainty obviously this is not from the the greek but um i guess where, where how do you guide someone in the in that yeah sure um i think we need to separate between knowledge and commitment mm. and I need to be certain of my commitment, but I don't need to necessarily expect certainty of knowledge because there's just so much that we don't understand about God. And when we look back in Christian history, um, we actually see that there has never been a single time where theology was not on the move, mm. constantly growing and progressing and, and coming to new understandings. It took us like some 300 years of Christian history to figure out the Trinity doctrine. You know, so how about those guys that were living earlier that didn't really understand that? Was that a life or death matter for them? Today, we would say that believing in the Trinity is like super, super, super important. Pivotal. But there was, yeah, there was a time when, you know, Christians didn't even get that idea. But they weren't Christians, so, don't you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So um, it's always been this constant development and growth. And for us to say that, yeah, we can, we can know perfectly, that's, um, it's just not it's just not logical because, you know, there's a, there's a verse in Proverbs four, I forget which verse that says the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more until the perfect day. And, um, you know, this idea is that as we go on in our Christian experience as individuals and as the church, we're developing and we're growing new understandings. Certain, we can have certainty in our commitment to God. You know, the gospel says that whoever puts his hand to the plow and then turns back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Mm. So that's not about knowledge. That's about commitment. And God is asking for that commitment. He's not asking for perfect knowledge. Mm. I think that's a, that's a great distinction in, in saying this is the thing I'm going to do, not necessarily, not necessarily having all the answers and knowing where it's going to go, but knowing enough to choose a, 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 a broad direction of where we're mm-hmm. going to where we're going to step. Um, it's kind of the, uh, what is it, um, the verse, uh, 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 Jesus is, or Christ is a, a, a lamp light unto our feet or something to that effect, mm-hmm. right? That word is light into my feet. There yeah. you go. A light into my feet. Not a spotlight, but a light. Right. Right? So exactly. just a little bit of a light. Now, yeah, um, that's, that's the, okay. And, and it's, it kind of, in my mind, it kind of says, well, here's the step I'm going to take. But it doesn't outline the entire path. It's just this next thing that I'm going to do. It kind of comes to, I guess, in my my argument with some clients is we don't need to have all the arguments or the knowledge about where we're gonna where it all ends up. But what is the thing I'm gonna do right now to manage my anxiety? And what is the thing that I can deal or how can I deal with this uncertainty right now to get me to that moment that I know my 
rational brain will come back, that my confidence in my commitment will come back, and my confidence and faith will come back, or and also that the anxiety ultimately will come down. How do I deal with this right now? And I think that's, I mean, that's the trick that everyone is struggling with, is what do I do with today, this moment? Now, did, did you want to get into your, your beef with absolute truth, or do you want to put that off? Let's do it. Okay. So, Jamie in an email had a whole section where she said, I've got some problems with the idea of absolute truth. So, no, she didn't say it like that. Um, she's, she's looking at me like, you're misrepresenting me. So, I'm going to shush and I'm going to let her explain her stance on absolute truth. Because I think this is actually, this is, this is a, I mean, let's be honest, this could be a hot topic for some folks. This could be a hot topic to some um denominations or doctrines or something like that. But I, I would love to hear your very knowledgeable and nuanced position. And I'm going to put my notes down and just listen and watch. Let's try this. You know, um, thanks for giving me the chance to, to talk about this, because I think it's a super, super important um, idea for people who struggle with certainty, not just um, not just people with scrupulosity, but for Christians in general that struggle with doubt and and, you know, thinking that their doubts are representing a problematic spiritual life, right? So um, th this this idea of absolute truth is super interesting. Absolute truth, I, I can still remember um, when I was in high school, I used to go door to door and I would sell devotional books to um, get a scholarship to go to a Christian school. And I remember one time, like one of my first times interacting with like a really hardcore atheist um, I was showing her these devotional books that I was selling and she was like, is this something Christian? What is this? Da, 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 da. And somehow we got into this spiritual discussion and, you know, I'm fresh from, you know, I'm, I'm in a Christian high school. I'm fresh with all of these apologetics and, you know, doctrine classes and all this stuff. You can and I to fight. <laughs> Not to fight, oh, okay. but like, it was just all fresh in my mind. Right. And, and I just kind of looked at her and I was like, like, you know, I imagine I probably had these little puppy dog eyes like, you know, don't you believe in absolute truth? And she was like, no way, I don't. And, you know, that was one of my first interactions with like a really, you know, hardcore atheist. And it stuck with me because that was the day I realized that, you know, not everybody believes that there is some kind of absolute truth out there that exists independently, that is unchanging and completely fully understandable. And, um, you know, as I went on and I, and I, you know, studied religion and I studied spirituality more and, um, you know, now taking a PhD, I'm moving through some very scholarly discussions and scholarly realms. And there's discussions happening about, um, you know, things that are so confusing for the average lay member. And there's like this disconnect between what scholars are understanding with their really heavy vernacular that they're, they're not able to communicate this helpful information to the common person. And that's why I, I feel that this discussion of um, certainty and doubt is important because um, we're, we're living in an old paradigm. And let me explain. Let me just explain. All right. So when we go, when we're talking about systems of truth, right? systems of how we know what we know, epistemology, basically. And so, um, from the 1700s to the early 1900s, we were operating under this um, philosophical system called positivism. And it sounds really happy-go-lucky, right? It sounds but positivism, great. I want that. Positivism, actually, positivism was this, um, this 
philosophical position that we can know all truth. It was very positive about human ability to know truth. We can know all truth. And if we just try hard enough, then we'll figure it all out eventually. That sounds delightful. How do we do that? Where's the book? (laughs) I know, right? It sounds wonderful. And, you know, this this epistemology or this philosophical idea was, was the foundation for all of these explosions in science and biology and um, all all kinds of discoveries that we see being made through the 1800s and early 1900s. This also came into the Christian church at that time, this positivism, this feeling that if we just try hard enough, we're going to figure everything out. It was a very um, absolute ideology. It was very purist. It was very like black and white, no room for incomplete, no room for partial answers. And we see this even in like the 1900s mission slogan, the evangelization of the world in this generation. And that was what they were, you know, claiming that they're going to get it all done. Ooh, a hundred percent, everything. We're going to fix it. Yeah, exactly. And um, it was a very optimistic period. Even scientists believed that they were really on the cusp of getting everything figured out. And this was the idea, like, look, we live in an ordered and organized universe. And so, we can figure out all the rules of operation here. Then, as the story goes, then came World War I. Mm-hmm. And the optimism was just shattered. And people were confused, and especially the church members that had adopted this ideology, the church members were confused that how can these Christian nations butcher each other? How can this happen? How can, you know, if it's possible for us to, is it that we have the truth? Why is this happening? Then World War I turned into World War II, and it just was going downhill. The, the optimism was gone. And it was at that point where a new ideology was being born. And that was what we now call postmodernism. And all of that optimism and all of that certainty that was in positivism just disintegrated into the postmodern relativism that, you know, you went from we can know everything to the opposite extreme, we can know nothing. Mm. And that was a huge shift. It was a very, uh, it was a shift of disillusionment and um, confusion that came through, through all this tragedy of the world wars. And so, you know, then we have the postmodernism that said, you know, everybody creates their own truth, their own path. Um, there really is no objective truth out there. Truth is kind of whatever your brain makes it out to be. Mm. So two absolute polar opposites that we experience. And the church, they were still, for the most part, in this mindset of positivism. And they saw the issues with postmodernism. And for a large part, they rejected it. But they didn't see necessarily the problems with this positivist model. They doubled down. And that, yeah, exactly. They, they, they reacted strongly against postmodernism and they clung really tightly to those, you know, conservative, fundamental, like, you know, ideological ideas that we have to know everything. Let's just double up our apologetics and we're going to figure stuff out and we're going to, you know, we're going to make this work eventually. Right. And I do think that that's a lot of what can be fueling this um, toxic positivity and toxic certainty is this underlying ideology that we can and should know everything. So that's sad and confusing, but at some point you have got to get a corrective, especially when you're in any situation where you've got polar opposites like this, really extreme. At some point, somebody's going to come up with an idea and say, hey, isn't there a middle ground position to this? Isn't there something logical that's going to take the strengths and weaknesses of both models? 
Because, you, you know, postmodernism doesn't get it all right, you know, but it does have some helpful correctives in saying that you can't know everything, you can't get it all. But yet the positivism side was helpful in saying that, yes, there are objective truths out there that we should try to discover. Right. Just because you think there's no gravity doesn't mean there is no gravity. Right. So both, both, both models of epistemology, they had their strengths, but they also had their weaknesses. So in the last 20 or 30 years, there's a, a newer um, ideology, a philosophical position that's kind of going around in the scholarly realm, but it hasn't really reached mainstream because it's just so clunky and heavy. And um, I'm just summarizing it in like a really, you know, easy way. But um, post-postmodernism. We, we do need a new name to it. I know, right? It's yes. super awkward. But post-postmodernism is kind of the intermediating position between those two extremes. It's the pendulum and pulling back. Yeah, the pendulum swung. It swung the other way. And now it's kind of coming back to center. And the center is saying that, yes, objective truth does exist out there. There are real scientific realities that my mental construction is never going to change. So there's truth out there. But my understanding of it is always going to be partial and incomplete. Mm. And that's okay. Um, so this new um, uh, way of thinking, it's called critical realism. That's kind of the nerdy technical term for it. Critical realism. Because we are critical about how much humans can know, but we are realistic about real truth existing. So with all of this, where does it come to scrupulosity? This comes back to scrupulosity because um, we've got to give up our positivism. Okay, Mo uh, people with scrupulosity are, I mean, I've never met a seriously relativist, postmodern, like, um, person with scrupulosity. It just doesn't happen. We are usually the ones that are clinging to our to-do lists and our checklists and our, you know, everything must be in a structure and everything must be certain. Complete. And yes, completeness. Right. We've got to have that completeness. And yet... Um, that's an unhealthy model for us to continue in. Mm -hmm. And it's also not biblical. Mm. So the critical realism or this post-postmodernism is super helpful. And I, I don't necessarily explain it to all my clients, but I'm using the principles of it with all my clients that um, at some point we've got to come to a realization that even though God has ideals, God has uh, truths that are out there that it's, virtuous for me to strive to understand it i'm not going to understand all of it and that's okay because god is looking for commitment rather than perfect knowledge mm. and when we kind of dig down to you know our underlying ideology and what we believe about what truth is and what truth isn't then somehow it becomes okay to release the grasp of that obsessive grip on absolute certainty and so when i hear the term absolute truth I, I feel that the term represents a position that's really outdated and incomplete. Mm -hmm. You know, it's representing that positivist position. Nothing wrong with the term itself, but the connotations that it brings up can be ultimately uh, difficult for the person with scrupulosity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, that, that idea of positivism, it, it, not only, it not only feeds into that human desire for, for a person to know the answers and to seek 
to seek an element of safety and certainty in the world around us, but then it even equates that to your spirituality, that, that not only is it something that your, that your heart desires, it's something that God desires, and it's something that we mm-hmm. ought to be doing in order for us to check that box that says we're a good, a, a good Christian. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, I betray, is, there, is there a book that is accessible to the average person that would discuss this, or is the kind of philosophy so, so kind of uh, new and, and academic that, that it's, it's, it's going to be crazy talk for the average Joe? Yeah, it's going to be really crazy talk. I'm actually working right now on an, I'm working with one of the editors of Christianity Today mm-hmm. to put out an article about scrupulosity and critical realism, because it's, like I said, it's helpful not only for people with OCD, but for Christianity in general. There's going to be one article. Most of what you're going to find is going to be very scholarly. Um, but as I was discussing with this particular editor, who's also taking a PhD, this is just circulating in academia. And because it's so... It, because it's a corrective, correctives have slow feet. Right. Okay, the postmodernism came in very reactively to kind of this collective disillusionment and tragedy that people were experiencing from World War One and World War Two, and it, it came as a reaction. Reactions happen quickly. Correctives happen a lot slower, and that's why this thing has been circulating among academians for the last two decades, but hasn't really got to the mainstream yet. So I'm, I'm hoping there will be some developments there because I think it really is a super important concept. Okay. Uh, when when you finish writing that article, I'm I'm very eager to uh, to read it. But I, I I think that there there's so much truth in what you're talking about with that. And just in and and you know I'm certainly not a scholar in, in, in or anything. But having kind of seeing that that there, if we use our brain and if we and if we check our emotion, that there does seem to be this balance between um, th- things that we know and just stuff that we can't know. There just is obviously things that we can't know. Um, mm-hmm. And what the, the, the pivotal thing that, that you said in all of that, and gosh, I know we've got three other points that we should get to, but the, I, I thank you so much for, again, for taking all of your time today to doing this, but the, hey, no the, um, the thing that you said was to say, yes, it is a, you said a lot of things in there. One, that, it's a good thing to strive to know. It's not an ultimate mm-hmm. thing. It's not the thing, but it's a good thing. It's something that w- would would benefit you in, in, in a way, right? But also to say, if you don't get to that point that you don't get it all, that's okay. To sit with this idea that it's okay to not know everything. Exactly. And it's so fascinating that, that you mentioned that again, because I, I don't have it here in my notes, but it brings to my mind, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's fantastic as book. Through velocity, because there's just so much in there that's helpful for OCD. But um, there's one part that talks about how um, Solomon says that God has given a task to the sons of men. And this task is to figure everything out. So he says that in one verse. Okay. He's given, God has given this task to exercise us to figure out everything. Wait, God, God gave the like, task or Solomon gave the task? God, here's, here's the thing. God okay. gave the task for us to figure everything out. Got it. To exercise us. But then a few chapters later, he says, God gave us a task that he knows we'll never fulfill. God sent us on a wild goose chase. It's for, and, and, I, and I like the verb that he uses, that God gave us this task to exercise us. It is good for us to strive for truth, uh, but yet we're never going to figure it all out. Oh, that's so, that's so frustrating. 
It's because it, it, it the 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 definition of it. I I think it's. Gosh, I wonder what God was thinking in that. But um, but that idea that idea that it feels like a wild goose chase to say that that go figure it all out. You can't figure it out. Try, but. I, I feel like that's the rat race that a lot of Scroop folks feel like they're on is they desperately have to know and they've got to know right now or else. I'm just, I, I just have got to bring this passage up because it's so, um, it's so helpful because, um, okay. So it's in Ecclesiastes one where it says that God, basically that God gave you the task to figure things out. Um, and here it says in Ecclesiastes 3, I have seen the God-given task. So, you know, harking back to that task of figuring life out. Mm-hmm. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he put eternity in their hearts so that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And um, it goes on just talking about how God is the fulfillment of what we're looking for. And it's almost as if, you know, of course, Solomon talks in really heavy language and sometimes hard to follow. But it's almost like God gives this task to exercise you and figure things out. But at the same time, it's impossible to finish. And therefore, the thing that you end up having to lean on is that you have to lean on God. So it's almost it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So to a person that's struggling with OCD and trying to figure out all the answers and especially scrupulosity OCD, I mean, it's just, it's just worthwhile to sit back and realize that this journey of figuring out answers also has uh, value in and of itself. And I don't need to have the pressure of reaching any kind of destination. Right. Right. So I, 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 I know we could keep going with that. Should we move on to the next point or is there, because I, I, I actually feel like this actually ties kind of into it because that there's that sense that if we don't get to the end, if we don't get to the destination of full understanding and knowledge that we can feel like we've done something wrong, we are something wrong. So the next point you've written here is normal guilt and OCD guilt are not the same thing. Exactly. So um, <clears throat> when we look at, cultures all around the world, what we see is that guilt is present in literally every world culture. Every religious group, every people group has guilt in it to some extent. And guilt can be a really useful thing because guilt acts as a as an internal emotional mechanism that drives people to making ethical decisions. And sometimes it drives you, maybe it's not even about ethical decisions, maybe it's just about culturally appropriate decisions, right? So, for example, I'm living in the Middle East. Um, There are some cultural uh, distinctions of clothing between here and other parts of the world. So, you know, somebody from this part of the world going out in the street in a pair of booty shorts is going to feel guilt because it's just not the culturally acceptable way of dressing necessarily, right? Um, It doesn't mean there's anything ethical to it or not, right? So we have sometimes there's ethical considerations and there's the cultural and social, you know, expectations part Mm -hmm. of things. Um, And, you know, I think that's important to to look at guilt as a helpful thing primarily, because even in the Bible, we see when it comes to the Ten Commandments or when it comes to the moral and ethical ways that we treat each other as human beings, um, God over and over uses guilt as a way of guiding people back to proper decisions that are going to be healthy for themselves, healthy for society, um, healthy for their own relationship with God. Guilt can be a great motivator, but 
Um, for some people, this mental disorder of OCD, it really hijacks that faith experience and it turns this guilt into something chronic. It turns it into like a disease, a, a guilt disease. Um, and I like to compare it to an autoimmune disease because mm -hmm. it's like you're attacking yourself with something that should have been helpful and useful for you. Um, so often I like to go with my clients to a passage that's really helpful for this in um, 2 Corinthians 7 that talks about true and false guilt. And um, so the wording that's being used in 2 Corinthians 7 is uh, godly sorrow versus the sorrow of the world. And it's comparing these two as far as um, how can guilt be helpful to us. And the reality is that um, the false guilt, it's giving you bad emotions without any real change. But the godly sorrow or that true guilt, that helpful guilt, is going to give you uncomfortable emotions that lead you to change and transformation and actually doing something different with your actions. Um, I'll just read you the passage here that I pulled out. Uh, from 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Right? So sorrow or true guilt is going to actually lead you somewhere. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow, here's the thing, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So we've got this idea that this false guilt or this false sorrow, it doesn't actually produce anything useful in your life. It's just productive of death. Um, what is this from again? I just want to write this down. This is from 2 Corinthians 7. Okay. Love it. And okay. here, here's, the, here's the way that he's illustrating that transformation that happens. The person that experiences this godly guilt or this you know helpful sorrow, here's what he does. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So here Paul is saying that like, when you have a true, helpful, godly sorrow, then you're actually going to be doing all kinds of things to change your behavior and change that. And in the end, the, you know, the judgment that he makes is that you've proved yourselves to be clear. What we see in scrupulosity is very different. Right. We don't actually see any kind of a forward moving trajectory where people, oh, I feel sorry for something. I read the Bible about something and I'm convicted. I need to change. You don't see that forward moving trajectory. You see this cyclical, circular, just, you know, wallowing in this repetitive guilt that never actually leads anywhere helpful. And so when you see yourself just wallowing and constantly overthinking and overanalyzing and feeling bad, feeling bad, feeling bad, feeling bad, and never actually moving anywhere with that bad feeling, that's when you might consider this is probably false guilt. And I think right there, that's actually such an incredible point. I've certainly that that cycle of, you know, genuine guilt leads to making a tangible, understandable and, and reasonable change to whatever you're doing that and it's something that is kind of known to the community. This is what we do. Um, religions have a way out. Like, if you do X, Y, or Z, there is a thing that you do. You do this, you go confess, you do this, you whatever, right? With OCD, though, and I think for, for a lot of folks with Scroop, when they first get that sense of guilt, they do those things. They seek the guidance, they seek understanding, and they seek a, a change in their life. 
But I think what you, what you pointed out there is that when you get into that cycle of you've done the same thing, you've done more of the same thing, and you constantly go back to that same question, that same doubt, or the same themes of doubts, there, mm-hmm. a giant red flag ought to go up. I mean, number one, what you're doing is not working, and it's not because you need to do more of it. It's that perhaps that's not the right avenue to go down to, quote, get the problem solved. Uh-huh. Right. So yeah, th- yeah, that that feedback loop isn't it, it, it needs to be broken. Yeah, and so often when people are in that cycle, they can recognize that this is probably OCD, but what if it's not? Right. And that what if question is just so powerful and so sticky, the what if. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier about the addiction to certainty. Yeah. And at some point we have to recognize that the what if question is a symbol of our addiction to certainty. And the what if is what we have to push through and say, you know what? It might be what I'm afraid it is. It might be something bad, but there's no way I can know. Right, so trusting back back in that concept that, that we don't know, God knows, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's... that. All right, though, let, let's... To put it into a, a, a fear that we hear a lot, though... What if I did commit the unpardonable sin? <laughs> I'm screwed. Right? Yeah. That let me pick a, a better word. Then I'm 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 uh, then I've lost. Right? I've lost it all. The thing that I care and love about the most um, or the thing I value the most, my eternal salvation is gone because of this thing that I may or may not have done. So to hear someone say, "Oh, just, you know, y- y- you'll never know." You might not ever know. <laughs> so I have, um, I, you know, blasphemous thoughts and fears of committing the unpardonable sin. This is a huge one in the scrupulosity community. And I actually have like, I have an article on my website that's about the third, the size of a master's thesis. It's uh, a huge, huge document about blasphemous thoughts. For the record, I told and, myself I was not going to ask the question about what you thought about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because I know that's a whole podcast discussion. But yes. um, I'll, if you want to give us the Cliff's notes on what you're about to say, it would be delightful. Yeah, so the thing is that if a person is afraid of committing the unpardonable sin, they obviously haven't committed it. And there's, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can... Um, kind of prove that from scripture but these fears of the unpardonable sin are mostly based on misinterpretations and misunderstandings of the actual verses themselves and who they apply to right yeah yeah okay and i i I want to read that article i've done a little bit of my own research on what in the heck all of that verse means and it's i'm like it doesn't mean what you think it means and it's it's not well defined. It's defined, but it's it's ambiguous enough to be confusing. But we're all right. Okay, I'm I'm not going to keep going down this path. What do I do this to myself? This is why we have such a long episode. All right. Okay. Yeah. So I have a bunch of questions here that I'm actually just going to pass because I think that that we've that we you've made the fantastic point about normal guilt and and, and true yeah. or uh, normal true guilt and OCD inappropriate guilt. Okay. So next point, shall we? Yes. Okay. Let's do it. The Bible, uh, the Bible is pro exposure therapy. It's for it. Yes. Um, this is actually one of my favorite points because, um, I so often get clients coming to me saying like, Oh, I was so scared of ERP. Like I didn't want to do exposure therapy. So please, can you help me do this in a way that doesn't involve exposure therapy? 
And I'm like, well, I hate to tell you, but, you know, facing your fears is actually whether you go to a Christian therapist, a secular therapist, a pastor, like at some point you're going to have to get to the point of facing the things that, you know, make you the most afraid. This is the way it's done. This is, this is just the way it's done. I wish there was an easy pill I could give you for this, but I just can't. But isn't there a verse uh, or a prayer that I should be able to have that can just take this guilt away? All right, right? That's, or that, some sort of magic joke. charm I wear on my, on my wrist or something like that. <laughs> we'll we'll um, develop it. Because again, as, as you said, the church is growing and developing and, and you know, we're going we're, we're gonna to figure that out. Maybe one day, right? One day. Not today, though. If you figure it out, you, it out, you should make a patent for it. Oh, we'll go in on it together. It'll be great. So when actually though when the when the Bible um, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about exposure therapy as far as a psychological principle, but it does give underlying um, views and principles that are helpful that can give support to what therapists are doing today with exposure therapy. And um, I'll go into this talking uh, through narratives. I actually did my my master's thesis was about biblical narratives as a method for worldview shift. So I'm really all about narratives. And a lot of what I use um, is, you know, Bible stories because theology is embedded inside the stories. And um, it's crazy because like some 75% of the Bible is written in story form. And we forget that we think stories are just for kids, but there's really deep theology about who God is. That's theology, who people are, that's anthropology what we should do, that's ethics. Like all this stuff is embedded in Bible stories. And so we just, we'll just take a lot of um, principles that are useful for psychology and useful for life from those stories. And I have a couple of stories that are just so helpful for um, exposure therapy and supporting that idea. Um, the first one is uh, actually from Numbers 21. And when you look at it, it's almost weird to think of it as uh, relating to exposure therapy, but it is, it, it really, it really has principles there that are super helpful. So in Numbers 21, you have the story about when the Israelites were getting bitten by snakes, right? They're leaving from Egypt, they're going through the desert and they've been complaining and, you know, making all kinds of problems for Moses. And then these fiery serpents come and start biting them and the people are dying from that. So they're obviously very afraid of these snakes because it's deadly to them. Right. And so they apologize for their grumbling and they ask, you know, please help us. Moses, ask something from God to help us. And uh, so Moses talks to God and God instructs him to create kind of an image of a snake and put it on a pole. And whoever looks at that snake is going to live. So it's kind of a weird story so far, you know, because God already told them don't make idols, but this isn't actually an idol. This is a medical intervention of a sort. Which is where we get the image for medical things, the staff with the snake around it. Okay, okay. So, um, so Moses makes a bronze snake, puts it on a pole, and whoever looks at it is cured from their snake bite and will live. So this, when we look at this story, there's actually two really important components here. There's the form of the cure... Okay, we've got the form of the cure and we've got the act of the sick person. Two things involved. Right. So the form, the form was the bronze snake and the act was simply to look. And, and both of these components we see in exposure therapy, right? Right. So um, first of all, what's weird is that the people are being bitten by snakes and the cure is to look at a snake. Right. Like, why didn't God tell Moses to make an image of a unicorn or flowers or a little cute lamb? Or anti Right. Like why the snake? Why did he make the, why was the cure to look at 
the thing that was causing them so much problem. Like that's already kind of weird. Um, the second part was the required action of the sick person. And this was really simple, but it was hard. It was a look. Right. There was no pill they had to swallow. Um, it wasn't about, you know, if you remove yourself from the presence of the snakes, you will be cured. It was actually to confront that and to look at what was causing the problem for them. And um, obviously this required an act of the will, a decision. And this is so important in ERP because you cannot force a person to do exposures. They have to actually choose that and um, do the confrontation of their own free will. And um, so we have these two aspects. We've got the, we've got the form of the cure, which is the, the snake, the thing that made them afraid. And we've got the act of the sick person, which is to do the looking. And that's what we have in the ERP. We have to directly confront and look at and face the thing that makes us most afraid. And that's actually what's going to be the cure for us. Now, what's super cool and amazing here is that in John 3, in the You're New Testament. you that excited look again. All right, go ahead. <laughs> in John 3, Jesus comes along and he says, that snake that Moses lifted up in the desert, that represents me. Hmm. Jesus said the snake represents him. Why? Because Jesus took on him all of our sins, all of our curses, all of our problems. He took that on himself. And the Bible says that Jesus became a curse for us. So when we look at that snake, when, when the Israelites looked, it was an act of the will. It was an act of faith of somebody that was coming that was going to take care of their problems for them. Mm. So this, again, is trust therapy in the narrative of the story itself, that not only are we confronting our biggest fear by looking at that snake, looking at that, you know, that, that fear that we've got about, maybe I did this, maybe I did that, maybe my blasphemous thought meant something, you know, maybe I am possessed by Satan, maybe, maybe, maybe all of these things that make us afraid, we face them, we look at it directly through an act of our will, and at the same time, we recognize that Christ became the curse for us. And Christ took all of that on himself. Right. And so it's not pure exposure therapy in that sense. It's with an addition of recognizing that as we're facing our fears, we recognize that Christ took the responsibility for all of this stuff, for all of these possibilities. And that, um, that can make it easier because even though the ERP is super, super difficult, we can know that Christ has really got our back through it. And, and again, that's that's the reframe of seeing exposure therapy as an act of faith. That sometimes mm -hmm. people will go into it thinking that it's going to destroy their faith or it requires something else. But no, it's that we're we're doing these things trusting that truth will the the ultimate truth, the actual truth, will bubble to the surface. Mm -hmm. So we're trusting and that it's, it's going to work. Yeah, and it's okay to have those uncomfortable feelings, right? Um, the other story that I wanted to bring up was um, from the Gospels when Jesus was in front of King Herod. And we know he was passed back and before his crucifixion, he was passed back and forth between, you know, different leaders who weren't sure what to do with him. Um, but at one point he goes in front of King Herod. And King Herod is this crazy guy that beheaded John the Baptist. And um, he had lots of opportunities to know truth through John the Baptist, but he rejected them. So when Jesus came in front of King Herod, he literally didn't say anything. This is okay. We talked about the exposure. Now we're getting to the response prevention. Part, okay. Okay. So when Jesus went in front of Pilate, he talked, he talked to Pilate because he knew that this guy has not fully closed his heart to the truth. He talked to Pilate 
But when he went to King Herod, he did not talk at all. And this made the, the, this made them like really infuriated because um, the Bible says that um, Herod had wanted to see Jesus for a long time because he wanted to see a miracle. So he thought this was going to be like, you know, HBO or some kind of entertainment coming like, wow, Jesus is here. Let me have him turn water into wine or something. Herod was looking forward to some fun. Um, but Jesus refused to say or do anything. And then this made them angry. And the priests and the Pharisees that were there, they wanted to goad him into talking, but he wouldn't talk. And so it was at that point that, you know, King Herod and all of the others, they started actually saying a lot of untrue things to Jesus. And through all of that, being bombarded by untruths, being bombarded by words that were incorrect, he remained completely silent. And this is a, this is a, a great concept for us because when we go into that exposure and response prevention moment, we're exposing ourselves to a lot of untruths, a lot of things that make us uncomfortable, a lot of things. Actually, we're not even sure if they're true or untrue. We're just being exposed to them and we want to respond. Right. We want to shout back and say, no, that's not true. I'm not like that. I would never do that. I would never be that. We want to respond. Right. But yet Jesus teaches us that there are moments when it does not make sense to respond. And it can actually be unproductive and unhelpful to respond. And Jesus was right. He was completely right. He had every right to respond to the untrue things they were saying, but he didn't. And for us, that's a reminder that when we go into the ERP, um, we do have examples of um, biblical characters that face their fears and didn't respond to them in the way that they wanted to or the way that they had the right to respond. They withheld that response because they knew it was for the ultimate good. I think that's that's such a that's so hard to do to sit there in the midst of accusation, false accusation, um, even partial truth sometimes, and to not then come back at it with correction, with uh, uh, challenging, with rejection of of what they're saying, but instead, I mean, to think about if if someone was just sitting across from you on the subway and was saying things about you, we we wouldn't. We, like to, to think that we would just say nothing is right. it, it, it sounds crazy. But then again, ERP sounds crazy. <laughs> and it, but it goes right back to what we were saying earlier about knowledge and commitment. Before Jesus went before Pilate, before he went before King Herod, before any of this was happening, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was recognizing that all of this stuff was coming in front of him. And it was going to be hard. It was going to be crazy difficult to go through that. But yet it was there that he made the commitment. Because we know that prayer. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save people without me going through this, let's do that let's, plan let's do B that instead. One. That one sounds great. Yeah, exactly. And, and at the end, he submitted to the plan, the original plan. He submitted to it. And he actually made that commitment. So the commitment happened in the Garden of Eden. I mean, sorry, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so going forward, he already had that commitment and fixing the false accusations or fixing this false knowledge. This was not his, um, his priority. His priority was the commitment to go through with it. Getting all the details right wasn't part of that plan. And I think there's, and this, this might be some reading into it, unless you've, you've got a verse of understanding. I, I can imagine that even in, even in that decision to go to the cross after Gethsemane, I can't imagine Jesus was like, 
well, I'm super cool with this. This is going to be great. I'm at peace and happy with all of this, right? To that point about it's okay to be anxious and sad and scared. There's no way. I, I know some folks who will say, you know, if you're feeling anxious or scared, it means you're not in line with God's plan. Therefore, mm-hmm. if I'm feeling these feels, then it must mean that I'm not right with God. Right. And that's just simply not what we see in the crucifixion story. I mean, the emotions that Jesus portrayed, they were very uncomfortable emotions. Would we say that he was not in line with God's plan? No, we wouldn't say that. No. So at some point, we have to readjust our worldview and where emotions fit into that. Right. What I, what I also love to, to go back to the, uh, the you said it was Numbers 4, correct? Was that right? Numbers 21. 21. So close. Um, but the uh, but that um, what, what I love about it is that the, he he had God had the Israelites looking into the eyes of a bronze snake. It was an approximation of the thing that they were actually afraid of. It wasn't the actual thing. He didn't have to say he didn't say I need everyone to go bit, get bitten by a snake. The thing they don't want to do. So often in, in what we're doing in OCD land for treatment of OCD across the board, group aside, it's we're we're generally not asking someone to do the thing that they're afraid of. In fact, that's the thing that we don't want them to do. But it's to do an approximation of that and to tolerate that process. But to do that approximation. For hit and run OCD, I'm not going to ask someone to go run people over for, you know, for uh, harm or contamination OCD. I'm not going to ask someone to go get COVID right now. But but to say, I'm going to do these things that make me feel like I'm doing that thing. And it's kind of an approximation of it. So, yeah, I think that that example in numbers is 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 a is a great one as a as illustration that we're not going to ask someone to do the thing that they're afraid of, but is to get close to that thing that they're afraid of while tolerating that feeling that they get. Yeah, that's an amazing point that you're making. And, um, you know, you asked me when we were talking earlier, you asked me how far is too far when it comes to um, exposures for the religious person and the religious obsessions. And, um, you know, that distinction that you're making between the actual versus the approximation, I think that if more people understood this difference, it would make them a lot more comfortable with actually doing the ERP. Um, when When I think about how far is too far, you know, obviously there's a lot of ethical considerations there. You know, you're not going to go and harm somebody or kill somebody or have sex, you know, with someone that's not your spouse and all of this stuff. Right. Um, like people are afraid of. But what you're saying, if more people knew that, I think that would really decrease their um, their anxiety about doing the ERP exposures. Right. And to do the thing isn't to do the thing that they're afraid of. It ultimately is not necessary in order to. Uh, learn that they can handle the anxiety. There's a lot of talk about the inhibitory learning model uh, in, in OCD land about ultimately learning that the feelings and the thoughts are safe. I put that I put safe in quotes, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's safe. Car driving or driving a car is safe. Flying on an airplane is safe. But it's safe. But it's safe. So it's <laughs> so with these things, we're learning that. The feeling about blasphemy is okay. It's safe. You're not in danger because you have that feeling or that doubt or that fear. It's just that you can have it and your brain is not going to explode and it doesn't mean immediate um, you know, casting into the pits of hell. It's that you have a feeling. It feels like hell, but it's ultimately not. 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's um, I, I, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, just what you were saying now about the, the feeling versus action, it, it reminds me of another story, which, again, I'm big on stories, um, with uh, Cain and Abel. And uh, interestingly, this gives us an a inside view about sin and when does it actually become sin? When does a thought actually, you know, take you too far? Uh-huh. And um, when it comes to Cain, you know, he actually got, he, Cain got angry at Abel. And there was a space of time between the, when the anger came and the murder came. And in that space of time between the anger and the murder, God actually came and talked to him and told him some really helpful stuff about sin. And, um, and he actually said here, let me see if I have it in my notes somewhere. Yeah, I do. Um, the, this is in Genesis 4. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And so uh, quite interestingly, God personifies sin almost like a, um, a wild cat or a crouching animal. And this phrase that sin lies at the door, it's sometimes translated as sin crouches at the door and it has a desire for you, but you have to rule over it. That's what God said. And so um, God didn't actually condemn Cain for having bad feelings. He didn't condemn him for having anger, but he says, hey, watch out, because if you take that emotion and you act on it, then you're going to be opening the door to sin. So having that bad emotion, okay, you know, there's, there's sin crouching at your door, wants to come in, wants to, you know, overcome you, but you have the ability to control your actions and your actions are what's going to either keep the door shut or open the door. And um, I think it's a really, really good example that having thoughts and having these emotions is not sinful in and of itself. And God doesn't condemn that, but he's concerned about the actions you actually take based on those feelings. I, 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 that's that, that's such a fantastic il, il, illustration and kind of this visual. What what always comes up, what, what is coming up for me with, as you say that is the is taking all your thoughts captive, right? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 people will kind of glom onto that with their thoughts and say, "Well, I need to destroy my thought." It's kind of what what you're saying here, but it's ultimately it's take thoughts captive. A tiger in a zoo is captive. We didn't kill it. We said, "You're this is your space. You stay here." Right, we can, but it's it's now made safe in a sense, even right. though it could there's absolutely kill us. There's a boundary on mm-hmm. it, right? So this idea that that yeah, with with Cain's kind of anger, it needed to be contained, but to say we're going to destroy that animal is that's not the command. It's to say yeah. you need to take uh, uh, what was the word? Not dominion over it. Rule over it. Rule over it. Yeah. Um, Right, I think that that's that's a fantastic illustration. That yeah, we can have the feels, we can have we can have anger, we can have to that point, we can even have positive desires. We can have uh, a lot of folks with OCD, a lot of folks, yeah, screw and OCD concerns. Well, I want to do quote sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, sin's fun. There's a reason it's fun, right? But to like, there have been some folks who will say because I I want to do X, Y, or Z, whatever the sin is, it must mean that I'm sinful. It must mean that I must repent of this feeling because if I was a good, good, upstanding Christian, I wouldn't want to do those things. Or if I had Christ in me, I wouldn't want to do those things. But that's not what uh, the Bible's pointing out. 
Right, absolutely. All right. So why why don't we jump on to this last point? I think we're going to leave the lightning round aside because this is this is easily the longest podcast I've ever done. Easily. You can, always, you can split it into two parts. You know, everyone tells me I should do that, but... Um, I just like these super long ones. If Joe Rogan and and folks can get away with four hour podcasts, I feel like I feel like OCD uh, the the Fearcast can handle an hour and a half or two hour long thing. Here we go. Let's do it. Then. All right. So the last point, though, reframing your beliefs is part of effective scrupulosity treatment. Yes, and um, my my point with saying this is that changing the way that we think changing the way that we process information and the way that we understand the world around us changing is really bedrock for the whole Christian experience, right? When, when we become Christian, it's not just to stay the way we are and never change anything. Um, and coming into the, the experience of therapy, it obviously involves changes and those changes can make people uncomfortable. Like, Oh, maybe I'm going to become less of a Christian or I'm going to, you know, mess up my beliefs somehow, but you don't know that. And, you know, being open to change is really important. And the, um, the illustration that I like for this one is from John chapter four, when Jesus is traveling with his disciples and he stops and meets the woman at the well. And most people know the story of the woman at the well. And um, what I find very interesting in that story is that Jesus wanted to bring spiritual healing to this woman. He wanted to offer her, a, you know, a helpful change that was going to transform her life in a positive way. But in order to do that, he had to open up really uncomfortable secrets. He had to peel back the layers of her past history, the things that made her uncomfortable. You know, we see them engaging in some doctrinal banter back and forth on what she believes and, you know, the the sins that she's done in her past. Like Jesus just probes this lady. He's just probing her and uncovering all kinds of stuff. And that was the setup for spiritual healing. And so we know that this is actually a way that Christ works is that he doesn't just like say like, Hey, yeah, come join my club. Stay as you are. He's like, no, come, come follow me, be my disciple, but let me open up the painful secrets of your life, peel back the layers and help you find healing in your deepest parts. And, um, you know, when we move on from OCD, that, uh, that obviously involves reframing and it involves changing the way we think about ourselves the way we think about our own thought processes, the way we think even about certain um, beliefs that we have. And um, doing that work of cognitive reframing is biblical and it's absolutely necessary. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because with scrupulosity coaching, I've been really blessed to have, you know, most of my clients really just put their back into the work and they're engaged and they're, they're, they're bringing their whole willpower and they're like, yeah, let's change, let's do this. But, you know, I do sometimes have clients that expect me to do the work for them. They expect me to do the fixing for them. And honestly, that is just not something that can work. You know, um, the idea that somebody can fix you without you having to change your thought process. Um, part of that, I think it comes from wrong expectations, but part of it also could come from pride. And that's a touchy subject. I know pride in the whole OCD process, but um, pride in the sense that the way I think is absolute truth and I don't need to change the way I think because all the things I'm afraid of really are as important as I think they are. And my thought processes are completely true. And I want somebody else to fix my anxiety without me changing my thought process. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. 
Right. I think the 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 illustration that I've used for for folks is that um, if you went to a personal trainer to try to get you in physical shape, you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect that personal trainer to lift the weights for you, expecting that you're going to get stronger. Mm-hmm. That personal trainer is there to help guide you, to help put a program together that's going to get you in as good a shape as possible in, in, in effective ways to also work around any uh, physical ailments, any weaknesses, any um, structural joint issues that, mm-hmm. that might be there. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got to lift those weights yourself. Right. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you've got to be able to do it. And, um, and I think that um, so you, you, I think you've, you've used the term reframing listeners to this podcast will hear me talk about it in terms of called cognitive restructuring. We're ultimately saying the same thing. It's thinking differently about our thoughts. And, you know, th- that is the absolute first step when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy is that we're going to take a look at the thoughts that we're having. And then for Scroop, it's going to look at the doctrines that we hold, the beliefs that we hold, and the interpretations we hold about various things. And it's not to say crush them, destroy them, or to think the way that the therapist thinks, but as instead, I think as you're talking about with uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, it's to poke holes, it's to ask questions and to lean against those things, because true things will stay, and false, funky things are going to kind of flex and bend or even break. Right. Those don't hold up to scrutiny, whereas that's kind of what we're doing is we're looking at the scrutiny and just seeing what things hold and what things stay consistent. And there's it's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's it's very vulnerable. And it also can certainly lean into that or, or feed into that feeling that we are losing the faith that we have. You kind of talked about how um uh now I'm forgetting exactly what that point was, but the whole point about um what what would you say to the person then who feels like they have it all together? You said the kind of that pride, right? How mm-hmm. do, how do we and, work and, through and, that? You know, people with the OCD they obviously know that there's something wrong, but they like to think that there's something wrong, you know, outside of my own, you know, my my own thought process. And you know, is there a pill that will fix this? Is there a prayer that will fix this? But ultimately, what we come down to is that it's the thought process that that needs to be fixed. And very, very often, not always, but fairly often, what I find um, with scrupulosity clients is that there is a, there are often doctrinal, uh, how can I say this? This bad doctrine combined with the biological aspect of OCD. Because, you know, the, the, the scrupulosity just feeds off of these wacky doctrinal ideas. Um, and in our day, like, I can't tell you how many people are getting their, their theological information from YouTube mm-hmm. and from televangelists. And I, I'm, I'm so cautious of these because in order for you to get views on YouTube, in order for you to get views as a televangelist, you've got to have something sensational. You've got to have some kind of clickbait that grabs the attention of the people. And you do not have checks and balances to make sure that your theology is correct. Right. And this, I mean, I've just... Oh, I've come up with so many, you know, crazy ideas about um, about who God is, what he's going to do to us if we're not good and all of this stuff. And watch this if you want to make sure you're not going to hell and all (laughs) kinds of stuff like (laughs) sensational stuff. And the OCD feeds on that, just feeds on it. Um, And so, yes, you may need to reframe some of your doctrinal beliefs. I'll be honest there. Some of it is real bogus. But a lot of it is simply the way that you relate to doubt, uncertainty, and guilt. And those are the big three. 
that may need to have some, you know, restructuring. Right, right. And I think to that to that point, it's where, where we want to look for in the in the process of correction, looking for consistency and agreement across sources. Um, that that uh, again, my my feeling is is that truth will stand up to scrutiny. And if you mm-hmm. are like, don't be afraid to watch pastors outside of your own, or to read theological books, or to even engage in perhaps some um, kind of reading reading or thought across the denominational aisle um, mm-hmm. it, because truth will ultimately stand up to that scrutiny and looking for that consistency across the board of some beliefs because there are some folks who you know there are going to be some very specific teachings that will kind of be weird in terms of you know what it, what it means to sin I I've seen some folks the um, you know folks who came to my college holding up big signs running across campus and you know confronting students um, and they said because they're Christians they don't sin anymore they are not sinners because they are wow. Christians now and it went okay how does that work out? And they, they came up with something and college was a long time ago and I've forgotten it. But the, the idea that, that I, I don't know of any major denomination that supports the idea that we are no longer sinners or that we ought to be able to get to this place where we are no longer sinners. I feel like that's, that's a yeah. central component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Bible is very clear that we live in a broken world and um, until until the world is redeemed, you know, all of the, the things that we read about in Revelation 20 and 21 and how, you know, the New Jerusalem will be, you know, a place of beauty and no more crying, no more tears. You know, all of these these hopes that we have for whatever whatever that's going to look like when God recreates our world, you know, that's going to be a perfect world. None of us are going to have OCD. None of us are going to have sin. None of us are going to have cancer or COVID-19 or any of these problems. But right now, We've got problems to deal with. All of us have those tendencies. And so, um, yeah, absolutely what you're saying about um, finding some consistency across uh, across beliefs. And, um, yeah, very important in my view. Right, right. Okay. Um, so, I, I, I know that I had some of the lightning round questions, but I know that we have just gone so, so, so long. So, no I, I think we can we can probably put those off uh, for, for another time. Perhaps I will trick you into being on the podcast again. Um, <laughs> I've, um, I, 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 I hope that if, if any of the listeners out there have follow-up questions or concerns or questions or challenges to perhaps uh, what, what we're talking about here, that they can contact me and uh, through, through the pod or through the, uh, the, the uh, FearCast podcast podcast. Uh, uh, website, uh, ask those questions, and um, I'll either field them or you know if, if you're if you're so willing to have you on on a future episode to um, to to c- confront the haters. I don't know. We'll use that verbiage, but um, but generally speaking, I mean I've said this before about the the listeners of the Fearcast. They're they're the most loving folks that I've I've ever come across. Um, so um, but yeah, so Jamie, um, I know that you've spent a ton of time and you shared a. Ton and I was kind of writing some of this stuff down and halfway through going, God, I should have been writing more stuff down. This is great. Um, but is there anything else that you'd want to, is there any particular takeaways that you'd want to give to someone out there? Let's say that, they, that, that they're a Christian. They're struggling with scrupulosity. They don't really, really know where to start or what this road is going to look like. What do you th- suppose you could say to them as they're embarking on this journey? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, we've shared a couple of, of principles and ideas today, but in my view, the, the really the most important thing that a person starting this journey can have, number one, is 
their faith in God. Okay, we don't know what that really means or what it looks like, but you've got that commitment, even though you don't understand all of the ins and outs of it. But you've got that commitment, and you can know that God is going to help you in some way. And the second thing is your willpower. The willpower of a person in this process is absolutely indispensable because we cannot do for you anything. You know, you've got to, we can help you, we give you suggestions, we guide you through the process, but you've got to be the one through your faith in what God is going to do for you and your willpower about what you roll your sleeves up and do yourself, that's going to make the whole difference of the journey. So I, I just really emphasize that um, the importance of people um, getting the elbow grease out and actually doing what we can't do for them. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much for your time. So uh, uh, if folks are interested, they can find you over at scrupulosity.com. Is that correct? Are you still at jamieeckert.com? Scrupulosity.com was a bit easier to spell. Uh, yes. Okay. So scrupulosity.com, if you have more questions or want to read more about her articles, um, uh, you can go check it out over there. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for all of your time and all of your, your expertise. So thank you so much. much for having me. I feel like I have learned so much from you also as we've kind of gone back and forth. And this is like really uh, helpful for me as well. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, have a good day. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for making it through this episode. Um, again, everybody, if, if you have any follow-up questions, if there's something that we missed, if there's something that particularly resonated with you within this episode, shoot me an email over at fearcastpodcast.com, and I'd be more than happy to uh, forward some of those additional questions onto Jamie or to, um, uh, or to uh, discuss some of those uh, on a future episode. Or even if I get enough of them, I'll be more than happy to have Jamie back on to discuss some of those questions in greater detail um, if she is willing. So uh, everybody, again, if you have a moment and could go over to fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey, that would be tremendous. Fill out uh, the little form there. Give me a little bit of information about what I'm doing well, what I could be doing better. And um, I, I will try to hopefully, again, just make this show as best as I possibly can. It is not for any other reason other than making it a better listening experience for you, the listener. So, all right, um, as per always, please remember that the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of extra help and support in your recovery, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and go to the Find Help link, and there'll be some resources that you can uh, access there. All right, until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.